It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello, everyone. I am That Williams Guy here for yet another episode that we continue to chug along. And on today's episode, our guest is Mr. Justin Dial. How you doing, Justin? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Lee. Uh, excited to have this conversation. I've had a chance to talk with you in person numerous times, and I, I think the audience is really going to love this episode. If you would introduce yourself to the audience. Okay. Uh, Justin Dial. I am a, a shooter, writer, trainer guy, a longtime shooter. Uh, you know, I'm yet another kind of a cliche former soft guy that's out there, you know, trying to help people shoot, um, you know, career Marine guy. Uh, long time in the training industry, both uh, on the job in the Marine Corps. I was fortunate enough to be involved with both shooting and training and, and some specialized units uh, for most of my time. Uh, long time competitive shooter in a bunch of different disciplines from, from high school to, mm-hmm. to present and uh, a gun rider. So, I, you know, continuing that, that tradition of, of Marines turned uh, gun riders. Yeah, I've Mar- heard about another guy that did that. <laughs> yeah, there's, <laughs> there's, there's a bunch of them. The Marine Corps is a small place, but, but we've uh, contributed a disproportionate share to the gun magazines, right? So I'm a field editor for the American Rifleman, uh, okay. you know, when I'm not doing a bunch of other things. All right. I can tell you exactly when I first heard of you, and that's when you came out with the five-yard roundup. And I get an email from Tom Givens with the article in it like go shoot this right now and when you get tom that excited you know you know we've done something that is a really good drill well thank you yeah the the roundup is is kind of took on a life of its own largely thanks to tom you know uh, quite honestly with him promoting it and others but i'm glad folks have gotten use out of it it's it it really is just one of those ones where things came together really well Uh, i've got a couple of others that are out there in different units using them and a couple that are going to hit pretty soon that i think are will also become staples for folks that serve a purpose. Yeah, you know, that's, it's, it's a simple low round count. I guess you could call it a test more so than a drill. Uh, a simple round count test, that's a pretty good evaluation of where you are with a pistol. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's, there's, I don't know that there's anyone that can uh, fake their way through the roundup. Right. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, hampered on the professional side by our peace officer standard and training council standards because the, the the state formulates a qualification that peace officers have to shoot and all of us in the state have to shoot that as our annual call or we have to shoot a course that meets or exceeds those standards i really got to tell you i think the five-yard roundup says more about it it can be done in less time with less ammo and tells more about a person's true skill with a, with a, with a pistol than the 30 round state course does really any of the law enforcement qualification courses out there. Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. You know, I, and I tell you, you could even take five yard roundup pair it with the old Bakersfield qual and you'd really have 
yeah. you know, you're, you're still what 20 rounds there. Yeah. And, yeah, and field is, uh, Bakersfield qual is, is an excellent, uh, you know, exercise right by itself. I was, yeah, I was kind of embarrassed. I worked for a couple of years on what I thought was something that was going to uh, be pretty good and, and still is, um, I'll publish it at some point. Mm-hmm. But then when I saw the Bakersfield, um, I was like, wow, this is kind of really similar, except maybe better. Uh, yeah. so you know, it's, um, yeah. Yeah. I've got a string of perfect 300 points. So a hundred percent on the state qual course going as I demo it, uh, as I train the jail staff to get ready to go to the Academy and I have to demo the state course for them. And with my, pistol mounted optic pistol oh my gosh he just admitted that he shoots one on the internet even though the internet says i'm an anti-dot guy i've got a perfect string of 300s going i have not shot a perfect hundred on the bakersfield qual yet i've shot a bunch of 99s yeah uh, but i haven't got a perfect hundred usually it's the first strings time that gets me i'm like at one five five or something like that on okay. it yeah and uh yeah, you know, to me, it's it's not a hard course, but it's a hard course to max and get every yeah. point out of it. And I've been taking some of our personnel that are willing to play along. And like after they get done shooting the state qual, I've been running them on Bakersfield just to get a comparison. And the Bakersfield qual scores are coming in about five points or so on average lower than their actual qual. And, yeah, uh, yeah, I would rather do something like that because it's – I think it's more valuable for the ammo. Uh-huh. Well, today we are going to talk about instructor progression. And just as soon as I said that, my phone dipped out and I lost the picture that <laughs> I had pulled up here of the diagram that you sent. All right. And the first thing, your first point there, it kind of titled Like My Hero as the first progression. Yeah. So let me just kind of, you know, set the table a little sure. bit. This is, it's just a, a model of, mm-hmm. of stages that an instructor goes through if they, if they do this long enough. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I don't mean it to be ugly in any sense that each of these stages, there are instructors who are doing fantastic work that is giving people the skills they need to, to succeed and, and, you know, uh, win fights. So it's, I don't mean it to be ugly or judgmental, but it is, um, just a little bit, you know, from my background, I've been teaching shooting stuff, uh, you know, in the professional sense since about 97. I started developing instructors and, you know, being responsible for their certification and their performance um, in about 2000. And so that was a group of about 40 instructors, including CQB instructors, weapons instructors, et cetera, non-lethal instructors. And then later on, I was the, the boss man of the training branch for, uh, um, for the Marine Raiders, uh, in the, in, in their schoolhouse. And so that was, you know, 80, 90 different instructors. Uh-huh. And so I've had the opportunity both to be a, you know, very passionate shooter and, and doing instructing myself, but also to see, see other guys. And some of them, that's just the job they were assigned. They didn't aspire to be an instructor. They just got told, Hey, you got to stop deploying and you're going to teach the next generation for a year or two. Um, and so some of this is, is just things I've seen. I don't mean it to, to sound ugly and to, in any sense of the word, but that first stage is, is pretty predictable, which is, you know, this is what I was taught. This is what my organization says, 
or if it's on the enthusiast side, most often, this is my hero. This is my guru. This is the guy that, that, you know, he's my shooting God. And I've, I've spent my money and, and trained under his wing. And, and now um, I am parroting everything I heard him say, because it's just so cool. And they do good work. It, you know, instructors do good work at that level. If, of course, the organization has given them a good model. If they picked up all the right pieces and the right sequences, which is sometimes a challenge. Um, and, and if their hero is actually giving out really solid stuff mm-hmm. and that they're able to connect their context to, to what he or she was, was meaning, which isn't always the case. Sometimes it's, it's the telephone game, right? Of, uh-huh. Well, I heard, you know, my hero say this and I'm saying it, but I'm using it completely in the wrong context, um, et, et cetera. Yeah. You know, it's funny to me how, you know, you go to a class as a student and you're, you're picking up so much information, but your brain's got filters and the, the guy that's teaching says something and it triggers thoughts in your head. You start thinking about those thoughts yeah. you know, and what's going on and you're concentrating on that while meanwhile, they're still talking about other stuff. Or you have the pressure of you're trying to get your magazine stuff to do the next drill. You're thinking about the, the you know, am I, how am I performing, everything else. And so you don't get the full package of what the, the instructor says. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've had folks, even like guys that are professional instructors themselves, because yeah. I, I do tend to get a, a, mm-hmm. a decent chunk of, of uh, real instructors coming through yeah. seeking my stuff. And I've had them quote things back that they got, got from a class that, that I know for, for a fact is not something I would say, but somehow or another, they got it, which, you know, maybe I, I take that as a fail on my part that they were able to take that away. But, but yeah, it's, so the telephone game is, is real. I've seen some mm-hmm. really crazy stuff where is, is it trickles down multiple generations removed yeah. from whoever first showed it to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure any anyone that's, that's traveled around, you see some just straight crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and I will tell you, just, you know, to tell on myself, um, I was, I think I was 21. Um, I spent my, my literally my last dime to go uh, train under uh, Clint Smith when he had Thunder Ranch in Texas. And you know, slept in a tent, spent a week out there, mm-hmm. and it was it was life changing and, 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 you know, huge yeah. influence on me watershed event and so for a number of years i was doing the world's worst imitation as you know as i taught on Mm -hmm. the job you know i was doing it just a terrible bad karaoke version of clint smith Mm -hmm. and you know that's 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 not helpful to people right like it's it took a lot of uh additional classes and training before Mm -hmm. i began to you know kind of find my own rhythm and have my own logic to things um you know clint does a much better version of him than i do you know i'll I'll put it that way (laughs) yeah and it's uh, yeah 2014 i took the range master instructor development course as a student and i don't know how many times i have helped as the assistant instructor since then I know Tom says the exact same things in every class, unless it's something that he's tweaking or whatever. 
I know he uses the same lesson plan because I spilled, uh, knocked his coffee over on it in 2016. And like 2019, he's still using the lesson plan with the coffee stains on it where I spilled his coffee on it. So I know he stays consistent you know, to what he's teaching. And you know, he does tweak things. But every time that I help him with that class, I pick up some of the little nuance. Yeah. And I know I've heard it the other times, but it's this time it, it got it. past the filter and stuck in my brain. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the case. Things stick yeah. differently. It's like that old, you know, proverb that, you know, no man crosses the same river twice, either the river's changed or he has, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, I, I'm certified by Dave Spalding as one of his handgun combatives instructors. And I taught a handgun combatives essential pistol class in August. And the first thing I told the, the students was, I'm not going to stand up here and try to do a Dave impersonation. I'm going to be true to his material, but it's going to be me delivering it. And I can't do yeah. it any other way. And I, I'm as many times as I've helped with the range master IDC, I'm a little intimidated because I'm actually going to be the lead instructor for one coming up in January. Oh, nice. And so it's kind of like, all right, you've been on the, in the bullpen for all these classes. And now here, here yeah. you're doing one. So you got to stay true to the material, but again, I can't be Tom. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not going to try to be. Yeah. And and so there's usually, like I said, that can work 100% fine. If you've come from certain units, certain organizations Mm -hmm. where the curriculum is just, I mean, it's vetted, it's rock solid. All you have to do is just follow the, follow the playbook. Um, And and that works well in in many, many cases. Um, It, but sometimes particularly in small organizations or where there's resource constraints, which, which is a real, that's reality of yeah. life everywhere. Right. Yeah. There's an instructor will have an awakening moment of failure is, is, you know, uh, one way to kind of look at it where they mm-hmm. realize that uh, maybe they're the big fish in the small pond and maybe that, you know, the skill set that they as an instructor possess is plenty good for their students, but it's actually, pretty meager in the grand scheme of of you know uh pros out there mm-hmm. and i know i've i've had those moments myself right. where um you know i i had the the medals and trophies and plaques to you know prove that i knew something about rifle and uh years ago uh kyle lamb when he was still active duty would would host a three-gun match that was kind of local to the the bragg area um and and it was an outlaw three-gun match that was i mean it was next level and, and the first time I went, I got spanked so bad that it, it was, it really was an awakening moment of like, okay, there's a whole lot more to, to run in the carbine than uh, clearly some of these guys have got access to some stuff I haven't yet. And I'd already been to some, you know, some of some high level instruction and in that stuff. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I may have told you this story in the past, but uh, it, the, the one schoolhouse we had a fantastic local range that had some real couple national champions in it. And it was, I would drag some of the CQB instructors to shoot some, uh, I think it was IDPA. And, you know, they show up with their drop holsters and their black hoodie with, you know, speed, surprise, violence, faction, you know, they think they're fixing to put on a, you know, a show for all these, these, you know, uh, fat dudes and, and, you know, whatnot. Um, and, and just, a uh, 13 year old named uh, Daniel Horner absolutely put the wood to, to both of these guys. 
and, and it was, uh, you know, that was, that was, you know, at the beginning of Daniel's meteoric rise, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was funny when the 13 year old was beating the instructors, it was much less funny when the 15 year old was beating me, right? right. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was an awakening moment for those guys. And really it was interesting to watch the reaction. One guy, it was, it was the right kind of humbling where he says, you know what? Mm -hmm maybe we don't have it all figured out in the CQB section. Maybe I need right. to, you know, you know, and he was like, Hey boss, you know, what about some of these classes? What about some, you know, some of these other uh, instructors and whatnot. And, and we had some really talented guys coming through and, and teaching. So, I mean, you know, they were exposed to really good stuff. Um, and the other guy found a million reasons to, you know, rationalize why none of it mattered. And it was all, you know, nuances mm -hmm. of the sport, whatever. And, um, and, you know, and his, his, pride was wounded and, and he didn't develop, you know, one inch as an instructor. Yeah. Uh, you're causing me to have flashbacks on that to the first time I went to an IDPA match. Uh, and, and no one, even in the remote comparison to Daniel Horner, whooped my tail. Uh, you know, the, I always say I showed up in my first match in the proverbial printer repair man you know, handed me my gun back to me and sent me back to, <laughs> back to school. And it was, uh, you know, here's the thing. I had my Georgia Peace Officer Standards and Training Instructor Certification, and I was yeah. a cop. I've been through the academy and all this kind of stuff. And, oh, defensive shooting, I got this whipped. And I got spanked. And I didn't initially go back to IDPA. Uh, I shot Glock matches for a while. And then I started wanting more competition, more stuff. To do. I started back shooting the IDPA and, you know, sh and, and progressed quickly. But that taught me there was a whole different level of good. And what I thought was good from, you know, basically telephone mill cop classes, because I could finish in the top three in every one of those classes, really wasn't all that good. Yeah. Yeah. And the, in the whole, like, what is good is man, what a perennial question. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, luckily as we were at that particular time, as we were traveling around, we were doing three gun, uh, we were doing service rifle, you know, high power and some IDPA. So we were doing a variety of things, each of which had their own kind of unique um, rules and emphasis and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. So it was, it was hugely beneficial for the program at the same time, you know, uh, we were rubbing shoulders with all kinds of other schoolhouses and instructors who were doing the same thing. And, and so it really created a, uh, a network effect for us where we were able to reach out to guys that went on to be, you know, big names um, and, and, you know, start collaborating schoolhouse to schoolhouse. Yeah. And, you know, we talked the other day and we kind of hit on this topic and I think we can squeeze it in right here is that people are using different terminologies to say the same thing and they get hung up on their terminology and they're arguing. They're really both saying the same thing, but they can't understand that the other side is saying the same yeah. thing. And this whole technical meets application, there is a good bit of that, but there's also some where the experience from both schools just won't, or both, both sides of that won't let each other come to an agreement. 
Yeah, well, there's a whole lot of ego and, and hubris mm-hmm. that's, that's wrapped into this stuff. You know, for some reason, in the instructor world attracts, you know, all kinds of folks. It's a big tent. But in many cases, I find that guys really struggle to believe that, that you know, they figured it out. And so everyone, anyone else is using a different term is either just stealing from them or it's, yeah. you know, it's a bunch of silly male ego stuff. Um, yeah. You know, the biggest thing that I took from the competition side of the house was learning the actual real amount of time that it took to do things. Yeah. And realizing that that cop qualification course, draw and shoot three rounds in two seconds was really a laughable standard to try to meet. And when I figured that out, shooting against a running clock versus shooting against the part-time, man, the, the course is built on part-times just quit being threatening to me. Yeah. And because I know what I can do in certain amounts of time and, oh, well, I've got three seconds to do this. It's going to take me 1.75 to do. Okay. But I can slow down and get it, do it even better. You know, when I'm, when I'm in that side of it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, um, competition could be so hugely beneficial for, uh, for instructors and for programs until the point that it becomes counterproductive where right. the guys are, you know, they're now, so wrapped up in the each like i said i've competed in a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of disciplines they each create their own little universe they're essentially belief systems with respect to speed and Mm -hmm. accuracy and and what matters what doesn't and when i you can very quickly start to chase the tail end you know the the last nth um and it at that point it can you know um, become a little counterproductive in in some cases but overall in balance you know Anybody who's not out there getting in a little bit of different disciplines of competition is doing themselves a, a disservice. Yeah. Um, you had another bullet point here of renting versus owning your TTPs. Yeah, that's that's kind of a um, shade tree concept of um, until you have tried it multiple different ways. And in many cases, opposing ways that go against what your intuition is or what your hero said or your guru said, um, it's not really your technique. You're renting or you're stealing someone else's and you don't own it yet until the, until you have genuinely tried to do it other ways. And I, and I would say for instructors, you don't see this in cyclical like military the setting where a guy's just there for you know a year or two. But in um, sometimes, but not not always. But when the 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 young instructor can you know quote unquote cross the master, and he can realize that his guru is is perhaps right in the context that the guru is teaching in out at whatever school or you know uh, whatever, but not necessarily right inside the specific context of this this unit its equipment its standards its resources etc and when when that young guy can um kind of make that break and be like okay i know that you know whoever joe schmo the you know the gm or the world champion or the you know former uh you know ninja team 12 guy uh 
you know, he says this, but for us, this actually makes more sense. That's a huge step in the development of instructor where they're able to kind of see past and make a reasoned disagreement with, with, you know, their, their hero, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that also goes back to uh, your, your point in the first bullet point there was I was taught and it's learning how to step away from the blind lesson plan that's coming down to you. Yeah. I was taught this, so this is the way to do it. Yeah. Being able to cross swords with that and challenge, challenge what you were taught and test it and determine it. And and it's pretty simple. When I hear an instructor preface something, well, I was taught with taught you're telling me, I don't really know, but this is what I heard in the class. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a logical fallacy, right? And, yeah. and where you, where you see that a lot, where it's necessary to, to rethink it is anytime mm-hmm. the equipment changes, the yeah. standards change, the equipment changes, what, whatever, you know, policies change. Mm-hmm. But when there's a significant change, you have to rethink things. And yeah. I'll give you an example. Um, I was at, at one of these schoolhouses as we transitioned from the MP5 to the, the first, you know, SOP mod in fours and, you know, disagree or agree, but used to the, the, uh, the SOP was once you made entry into the house, the safety never went back on and only MP5 until everything was done. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as we got the M4s, one of the staff was like, Hey, this is unsafe and stupid. Like this is, there's no, and you know, they, we actually got the timers out and ran some mm-hmm. stuff. And it was like the, the SOP has to change. The instruction has to change that we're accepting risk for no upside to to just run around off safe so um and and so it doesn't matter that it made sense in the past but you can usually see when the equipment changes in a big way Mm -hmm. there's little artifacts that will stay in the program for sometimes decades uh that that no longer quite make as much sense yeah and that turn it off leave it off kind of makes sense with the mp5 because of how hard that safety is to actuate yeah, but the old ones. You know, most of the people yeah. that are handling newer ones, you know, they don't mm-hmm. get it because they're yeah. pretty they're pretty solid now. But the old ones uh, with you know ill fitting you know flight gloves, hand me down flight gloves of, mm-hmm. of the era and whatnot. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it made yeah. It made a little more sense then. Yeah, that safety was kind of awkward to manipulate. Yeah. Versus the M4, it's just flick your thumb back and forth. Right. Um, you know, and so as as the the equipment change like saying another one from that would be the old technique of the mp5 of hand on the magazine pulling back into the body well you got this little short gun you're doing that you don't have a whole lot of leverage that keeps your hand further away from the muzzle but you start doing that with a 16 inch barrel or a 20 inch barrel uh ar platform and you're creating a lot of wobble out there doing that yeah so there's there's a lot of you know the equipment is um I, I run and, and I encourage anytime somebody's doing anything with me or they're listening to anything, I've got to say, I encourage them to run anything that they're being uh, exposed to through a number of filters. You know, the first is obviously mm-hmm. the mission. What are you trying to achieve? Right. And does it, does it make sense? And the second is the equipment, of course. And then the, um, the next is the amount of resources and the sustainment that you're willing to commit to this. And, and, you know, in many cases, that's a huge differentiator. Somebody that's going to be shown this one time and they're going to maybe 
go, you know, plink low pressure once a year is, is not the same person is not the same, you know, case as someone who's in a organization or a unit where they're expected to go find bad people and confront them and, you know, do something Mm -hmm. with them. Um, And then that they're going to be shooting appropriately, right? Like in um, monthly intervals or whatever it is. Um, And the next would be, you know, what's the level of skill and experience that that person already has, you know, are they just, you know, are they um, an elderly housewife who's concerned for their safety because the way where the world's at, or are they, you know, Mm -hmm. a former, former SWAT dude who's, you know, now um, just taking in some training. And, and so that matters and, and, and changes things. And the last is, is you know, stroke the obvious, right? Which is yeah. just the physical differences of, um, you know, my daughters and my wife, I've got, you know, extra large, you know, palm basketball hands and they can barely get around a double stack handgun. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, what works for me is, is just a non-starter for them in, in, in a, a decent number of cases. Right. You know, and that's, Looking at the student there, if we're instructors, we're supposed to be meeting the needs of the student. Yeah. And if the student is the person that you described as, you know, they're probably going to go plink once a year or something like that, or they've something has happened in their life and they decided they need a firearm in their home because they want to be able to protect themselves and their family in their home versus the people who's actually going out and hunting down bad guys or the people who are actually going out and hunting down trophies yeah on the competition side okay all of that we have to start with getting the firearm between us and the bad guy in a usable form and then all of us have to be able to press the trigger without moving the gun off target okay that's the core of all of it but there's so much different nuance you know getting someone to you know c-class level in uspsa is probably not that hard getting someone to master and grandmaster level in USPSA, this is a significant challenge. Yeah. Uh, but the C-class person can probably handle most things they'd have to do in the application side of the world with a firearm. Yeah, no doubt. It's, uh, you know, people win fights every day with zero training or just what mm-hmm. they saw on TV. And, and you know, right. uh, if you're willing to work at it, you can take right. techniques that are, you know, woefully outdated and mm-hmm. still reach a, a pretty high skill level. Uh, so it's, you know, sometimes we, we kind of, yeah. you know, we, we get, uh, get a little yeah. overwrapped up on some of these things. Yeah. You had a note about the enthusiast trap and I, yeah, it's kind of yeah. that thing there is like, I, I'm pushing for master and grandmaster. So therefore everything firearms related has to fall into that same trap. Yeah. So, you know, the second level, second stage for an instructor past that, uh, you know, like my hero Mm -hmm. tends to be uh, a guy who's now he's into it right now. This is his thing. His Mm -hmm. part of his identity is he's an instructor. He's, he's, and and maybe for all the right reasons, he's helping people. He's, he's deriving satisfaction from that. He's, you know, I want to do this for a living or whatever it is. I want to help as many people as possible. Um, Well, very, you know, at some point, they stop uh, regurgitating what their heroes said and they develop their own opinions. And, and usually, and I don't mean this in a bad way, it becomes shoot like me. Yeah. You know, this is what's working for me because I mean, that's the most powerful, relatable thing is your personal experience. 
but there's a fork in the road there. And, and so some of that is, you know, the good side is, is that hopefully at that point, the, the uh, you know, our hero of the story is now trained with enough folks mm-hmm. that they've begun to, to synthesize. And so now uh, they've, they're picking up, you know, still a bunch of nuggets from their original hero, but now they've, you know, saw this on YouTube and they had a buddy who did this and they had this firearms instructor who said that. And over time, through their own efforts and their own kind of development and progress, they've begun to synthesize this and they're finding things that work really well for them. And they're usually really excited about it. And that's a, that's mm-hmm. a fantastic thing. I'm not at all downplaying right. that. And they're very excited about it. And, they're, and so now they're sharing, like, hey, this is what's working for me. You've got to do this little trick and this and this mm-hmm. nuance and this, this little technique and whatever it is. Um, and so that, that can be helpful. Um, however, the guys that are the most excited tend to be also the guys that are mm-hmm. now, this is their hobby. This is their enthusiasm and they're chasing, they're chasing advancement in whatever sport and every sport has weird little things that matter only in that sport. And they're much less relevant in the actual, you know, real world of, of application. Um, you know, for example, when the the Marine Corps was first kind of dabbling in, are we going to move away from more of the service rifle high power stuff and get into some three gun or multi gun? I was, you know, uh, talking with with the guys that were in that effort, and I said, look, you know, you have to make a decision early on. Are you going to chase shotgun, which the average Marine really it doesn't exist in his world. Or is this more multi-gun where the things that do exist in the average Marines world, the light machine guns, the other, you know, all the different machine guns, the carbines, the rifles, the pistol, you know, is it grounded in the Marine Corps or is it grounded in three-gun nation? And, um, and you know, the shotgun should fit inside of that context. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that wasn't always some, that was a, that was a struggle because as guys went and saw really some fantastic success out on the circuit, uh, because now they're professional shooters and they have the resources and they're like super excited about the stuff they're, you know, they're sharing things they're excited about, which just, I mean, the Marine Corps at the time didn't even have a pouch for shotgun shells. And so teaching guys to reload it quickly is kind of silly because the guys yeah. want to be like grabbing them out of a cargo pocket or you yeah. know, some makeshift thing. Um, and, and if he had the shotgun, he's probably, you know, like the guys I knew that carried shotguns were guys that every, every other weapon was taken and they were left with a shotgun, right? Yeah. Like in, in one case, it was the public affairs guy. And, and, you know, that was the last <laughs> thing available to him. His moment of need was a shotgun. They're like, hey, take this. Um, uh, so anyway, the, uh, the enthusiast trap is where guys begin to chase the little, little things that matter greatly inside a discipline, uh, mm-hmm. inside a field of competition, um, or inside of a very specific, uh, this is kind of current day, right? Yeah. Some, some stupid aspirational, you know, uh, gimmick, you know, give me my whatever, um, yeah. you know, um, you know, my, my 0.3 draw coin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they begin to, you know, as they begin to chase these little achievements, because that's really what they are, they're achievements, yeah. that they can get a little askew on what matters. And, and as they begin to, you know, get little bits to add to their ego that they achieve this or that, uh, 
you know, the average, the guy that's just coming through training may not share that enthusiasm. Right. right. So, I mean, there is, as it, as they make that progress to shoot like me, there's some risk there that, that, you know, younger guys, especially when they're white hot on this stuff, they can get a little off track. And, and most organizations guard against that. Honestly, most organizations, that's why in some cases, um, organizations get a bad rap for not being a little closed minded about competition and stuff. Cause most of yeah. them they've gotten burned by, you know, young white hot instructors who go and get really excited about some stuff that just doesn't necessarily fit inside the program. And then they're, they're, they're just malcontents like, Oh, yeah. we should be, we should be running, you know, SDIs. Why are we stuck with this piece of crap? Whatever, whatever, you know, and it, it just, um, so yeah. yeah. And, and that can flip the other way around too. Um, I recently taught a carbine class to our personnel and the whole class was based on mechanical offset. And we shot on three by five cords at seven yards for most of the class. And I'm making a big deal about mechanical offset. And because I think it's a thing and we were carrying these AR rifles for the deal with, to me, you, you carry the rifle because we want to dominate the encounter. Not because I'm going to have to shoot somebody at 300 yards. Yeah. And, and so the encounters are probably still going to take place inside the mechanical offset distance. And so I'm really, really, really stressing that. And the feedback that I got later on was Weems hates ARs. <laughs> and while they're not my favorite they they wouldn't be my personal choice if i were king of the firearms world but that's what we got and i i've learned through the grapevine from some of the feedback is there are a couple of deputies are the question well if this is this is so problematic why did they buy us this junk you know so and what I was trying to teach this one thing, and that's, you know, I'll admit it, it's one of my pet peeves, and I'm beating this drum, I completely turned off some of the personnel to the gear that got. And I got a couple of people now who probably won't step out of the car with their rifle. Wow. Because of that, and because they don't have confidence in it. And it's, you know, I think I'm doing good on this one thing, and then I create this other problem on this other and i've taught that same exact lesson plan on the private sector market and never have gotten that feedback yeah well that's you know that's a big difference that that uh folks who've not dealt with you know both crowds they can't appreciate the difference between a guy who's attending this training because he or she has to Mm-hmm. and and they they don't want to be embarrassed they don't want to do poorly they're they may or may not you know buy in that's even necessary and someone mm-hmm. who's chosen to come to you you're their yeah. hero perhaps <laughs> and they've paid their good money to to uh sample your wares yeah. and and there's just there's just huge differences between yeah. those two um two folks yeah and you know, there's a certain extent and I can't speak for the military because I don't have that 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 background, but I can speak for law enforcement pretty well. And there's a lot of folks that if the job didn't make them carry the firearm, they probably wouldn't. Yeah, it's just it's no it's no different than the mobile data terminal in their car. It's just a piece of equipment. 
and we've got to be able to relate to that audience as well and that is i think that's where the private sector trainers don't understand that as far as trying to relate that back to students who are not enthusiastic to be there they're, they're, they're prisoners they're not students yeah and see that a lot too with the private sector side that want to argue over gear choice and selection and okay i'm out trying to outfit general issue for a large number of people i'm not trying to outfit you yeah that's one of those issues that anybody who's ever been involved with it understands you can't get it right Right. Uh, it's it's you can get it more right than wrong but Mm-hmm. If it's if it's the right piece of gear for the person who probably shouldn't be armed in the first place, then it's yeah. probably the wrong piece of gear for the you know yeah. the high level person, right? Yeah. Um, you know, post Virginia Tech shooting, I was with an agency that adopted patrol rifles as an immediate response to the Virginia Tech incident, and we got Bushmaster ARs because that was what was on the state contract. Now I can throw a fit as the gun guy. This isn't the best. This isn't the best AR. This is what's going to All right. But that's what's on the state contract. Yeah. And we can we can buy it without going to a bid. And you know, the, the powers that be bought those and I went out and taught the guys how to use them the best to the best of my knowledge at that point. I'm struggling at that point because I'm running trying to get training so I can come back. I could run an 870, but you know this SAR thing looks weird where's the lever on it uh, where's the where's the pump and um, you know and it's sometimes when you're doing the general issue the gear choice is not what the enthusiast would want but you still got to work yeah. that and make it yeah well, a lot of times yeah and uh, I, I can tell you there was a time that I had one of those ARs in my hand that I was really glad that I had it <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't care that it was a contract level Bushmaster rifle <laughs> and not my Daniel defense that I have now or one of my Colts or anything. Yeah. You know, I was, I was dang happy as I was sitting there holding that thing going, you know what? I'm glad that I can do this from 50 something yards away. And, uh, yeah, thankfully, thankfully, yeah, it ended up not being a, a thing, but for a second there, I thought it might be. And I was like, you, you know, I'm really not worried about the name brand that's engraved into the side of this rifle right now. Um, yes, the, um, I, I find that in the grand scheme of in, instructors that are out there, mm-hmm. and and let's be let's be clear, there are sure. more instructors out there now than than you know. It's almost mm-hmm. hard to take in how many are out there, right. and I don't mean that in an ugly or jealous way at all. I think there's right. there's a tremendous number of of really good instructors. I think a lot of them are doing good work, and I think yeah. that it's not going to be long, and some of those that are doing good work are going to be doing great work as they continue mm-hmm. to develop. Um, but most of them from, you know, my kind of outside view are in that, Hey, shoot like me, uh, shoot like me, you know, the, the younger ones are in the, probably still, you know, doing their version of whoever their hero is. Um, but I I will say that, you know, in my own experience, I had probably been to somewhere between 12 and 15 different classes and was, you know, actively teaching uh our supervisors you know okay mm-hmm. not only how to shoot but how to train their guys to shoot and whatnot before you know i start developing kind of my own sense of logic to some of this stuff and what you know what seems to fit the um fit the audience and and stick and so 
and for years that was that was you know okay i'm out there putting lots of energy into this this is what's working for me and and my opinions are pretty hard based on i'm seeing success with this mm-hmm. for years you know i'd say you know 10 plus years that was kind of my focus was largely um you know bits and pieces that i'd picked up from all my different mentors but uh, um but largely shoot like me and and guys will do there are guys that will probably never progress past that and they'll do great right. work and they'll have customers and the customers will be happy etc but what you find is guys that have been around a long time they they've ran into so many exception cases or they have to kind of quite frankly realize that there's lots of ways to do this and you can look at really high level guys who are doing mm-hmm. kind of opposite things in in some respects yeah. that that you know they begin to to simplify and reduce and get down to some principles and they get less dogmatic mm-hmm. about things. Some of them get more dogmatic, but that's just their personality. Um, and, and what you find is with some of the really senior guys that they're, they're very principles based and, and it's possible a guy could have started that way because he was the beneficiary of a really, really solid program. Yeah. But most guys kind of grow into this highly principles based and what you'll tend to find in the open market is that as they hit this kind of stage, they're optimizing for their customer base. Uh-huh. Everybody seems to be able to find their crowd. You know, you know that if you're going to this guy, this is kind of what you're going to get and you're attracted to that. And so, you know, what you'll find is super enthusiasts who literally change their gear based on the instructor they're going to, right? Like I have to use my signature, you know, whatever, whatever, because I'm training with him. And then next week I'm training with this guy and I'm going to use a whole different rig because it's going to be a different world. And, and I'm not, I'm just poking fun. It's, you know, I've been that guy too, I guess. Um, But what you find is that as, as the instructor kind of develops principles, he's optimizing for his most common denominator, his customer base Mm -hmm. or hers, I guess, if there's, if that's happening on the female side. Um, but they're optimizing and they're saying, hey, this, this is the smoothest delivery for the most people. And it may not be exactly how I do things, but because oftentimes there's this weird kind of thing where in the training business, some of the most highly skilled guys pull in audiences of really entry level guys. And so there's this big gulf. Yeah. And so sometimes they're optimizing, not for how they would necessarily do it, but for what's best for, for their most common customer. And then they're also building the exceptions where if you've done it enough, you're, you've seen, okay, these are the common outliers. The, you know, this works for most folks. And then there's, but if this doesn't, then this, you know, the, the exception case where you're starting to, you know, largely mm-hmm. uh, fairly principle-based uh, approach to, to things is, is what you see with guys that have been, been at it for a very long time. And that goes back to your previous point too, is you have to own what you're teaching or you just don't have the ability to step outside of that. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, when all you've got was got is I was taught and whatever you were taught won't work for a particular person. Yeah. Or the thing that works great for you, you know, you find a guy that's got a physical um, Mm -hmm. difference, a disability, or just, you know, that they're just not able to meet you there. And you have to really start thinking about, okay, all right, is this, is this really, you know, is the technique so important or is the principle important and how do you mm-hmm. start to adapt? Yeah. Yeah. And 
yeah, I guess that goes to your, your other thing of putting the student above the system. Yeah. Yeah. You know, usually around when I, when I see folks that are kind of getting principles based, their, their, their ego is, is less wrapped into, you know, it's not the, you know, whatever their name technique, you know, it's, it's principles based, but they, you know, they begin to realize, Hey, we're all, we're all kind of unique. You know, we, we, none of us drink our coffee the same way. We don't, you know, uh, whatever there's there's lots of differences and so it's uh how do you how do you uh, accommodate some of those and you know i think you and i were talking about you know the the whole bruce lee scale of of you know punch is just a punch and then like oh wait, wait, wait a minute there's actually a million nuances and variations and so the like me and, and the early part of the principles thing is where guys get can really go super deep on on technical stuff and get really wrapped into it and, and that's, that's positive for many folks, but then you kind of reach that level where it's uh, the, where, you know, in the Bruce Lee sense, it's now at that higher level. And now uh, it's just a punch. It's just a kick. It's the artlessness. If you're, you know, hitting his model of it's you, you understand this and there's a, uh, with this stuff, the book, the talent code, I, I got to underline here, Browning high power for a bookmark. Um, says um, that a great teacher has the capacity to always take it deeper, to see the learning the student is capable of and to go there. And it keeps going deeper and deeper because the teacher can think about the material in so many different ways and because there's an endless number of connections they can make. Um, and that's kind of that master coach level. This is you know, a quote from a guy who's, I think, a, uh, a um, swimming coach, if I'm not mistaken. This talent code by Daniel Coyle. Um, and that's kind of, as, as guys reach that, I think there's a cut line where principles-based, and some of this is the business model. I think you and I were talking earlier. Some guys will stay principles-based because the business model drives them there because they have the number of students that they deal with at a time doesn't allow them to personalize beyond that. Um, and then other guys choose that they where, they're, where, where they want to do their best work is at that individual coaching and development level. And their business model, usually not super profitable, <laughs> is much smaller classes where they can take that individual to, to wherever that individual needs to be. And that's that fourth level that I would, that I would submit. And I think, and for many guys, it's aspirational. I don't know that, that, you know, that there's, as I describe it, a whole lot of names don't come to mind. And that, yeah. so the first level is like my hero. Second level is, you know, like me, uh, shoot like me. Third level is, you know, shoot like these principles. And then the fourth level would be shoot like a better you. And where that coach can see the intersection, the ideal for any, any shooter is really at the center of their personality, their technique that they're most familiar with and is closest, you know, what's closest to where they're at now, their belief systems when it comes to speed and accuracy and what is good and what matters the most. And then, you know, those filters we talked about, you know, their equipment, their mission, their, their anatomy, their resourcing, that kind of stuff. At the center of all that is an ideal. And so, you know, a, a fantastic coach 
can kind of see what is that ideal for that guy. Yeah. And he's giving perhaps that shooter two shooters next to each other on the line, having the exact same result on target, but the, but the, the instructor is giving them completely different advice, completely different advice because he's coaching the individual and he's not coaching them based on principles anymore. It may sound like it to the untrained ear, but more and more he understands that this guy, his personality values this and his perhaps his background. This is going to resonate with this guy. Whereas this approach to this other guy based on his uh, let's just stay on personality. His personality is is where he will derive really when you get right down to it, where does he get the happy juice? Where is the dopamine flow? Is it from understanding and having control and having really precise hits on target or is it, you know, from something else? And, and, you know, the, the intersection of those things is really where, where the, the, the um, that instructor is, is seeking a, the best version of that shooter in the space and time available. And, and so like, there's a, um, a, a phrase that, that I call stepping stone issues or monkey bar issues. And I don't know that the phrase is ideal in either case, but, but you know, just bear with me. The, um, the, the concept being that if we were, you know, coming across a stream and we're hopping stone to stone, the most athletic and aggressive and, and, you know, don't care among us may be able to jump from the first stone all the way to the, the last stone across the creek. And, you know, somebody else may be able to skip one stone. And then somebody else is very carefully putting, you know, both feet on this stone and then thinking about it and catching their balance and putting their, you know, feet on the next stone. And maybe they're even kind of like, you know, trying to put, you know, one foot on each stone for a bit. But ultimately to get better, you have to leave the stone that you, um, that you stepped on or the monkey bar that you're, you were swinging to and from. And so the concept, and here's like an example, there's many, many, you know, but an example, many shooters will find that they have to um, grip the gun harder to get better. Right. And so, you know, their, their initial instruction, they're not gripping it correctly. Okay. I'm gripping it correctly. Oop, I'm still not gripping it, you know, firmly enough. And then I'm getting too much uh, muscle flip or whatever it is. And so they have to grip it harder as they grip it harder. They start to see success. And then at a certain level, let's talk, you know, dominant hand there. So on the strong hand, they're just white knuckling this joker to death. And they're getting good success relative to when they weren't gripping. Mm -hmm. But at a certain level, they have to relax the strong hand grip to get better. So the thing that actually caused them to progress and get better is now the very thing that's holding them back. And, and, and there's many, many examples across the shooting world of this okay. where, and so that some of the art of this is being able to figure out where is this person on their kind of, you know, uh, hike up the mountain and telling them to relax their grip yet is not going to be good advice for them. You know, it, it may be in a year, maybe in two years, it may be, you know, five, 10, 20,000 rounds down the road, mm -hmm. you know, but, but right now they just need to grip the gun. Yeah. And, and trying to tell them to, you know, well, I want you to grip more with this finger and less with that finger, like stop, just yeah. grip the gun and let's, let's make some progress. Yeah. And so some of that is, um, you know, how do we get, how do we meet the shooter where they're at and put them mm -hmm. above the system and, and really 
respect what we're trying to accomplish for them. And, and I'll tell you, it's aspirational I, for, for a lot of, a lot of coaches will say they're doing this at the other levels and, and they may be to a degree. Most guys just don't have the, the knowledge base to, to yeah. truly do that. Um, and so like, you know, one of the things I teach around uh, uh, DOD is because, you know, on the day job, I'm teaching stuff that's not shooting uh, quite often. And, and so, you know, we're inside of uh, my career, we've used different personality systems where you're understanding the differences people's personalities bring. I'm not talking Myers-Briggs, but there's several other systems out there that, you know, each of us value different things. And so what you find is that a lot of instructors are really reaching their crowd or people that are wired like them. And, and, but when someone that's not wired like them, they just think, well, well, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, some derogatory phrase, you know, but the the reality is, you know, we, we all have different things that we value and different, you know, different points of emphasis. And so as you can begin to kind of predict where that guy is or that, that gal and meet them there to help them kind of get where they're trying to get based on, you know, those filters and where are they, um, that's, I don't, I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm over the next couple of years, I think I'm going to make some real effort because I'm, um, I'm dabbling with this stuff. Right. But it's, but I think there's, and I have the luxury of, I don't do that many classes. I usually get really, really high quality, you know, folks, um, in small groups. So it's, you know, I can experiment with this stuff. And I think in a couple of years, I'm gonna make some real progress there, but, um, but I don't know. It, it may be, you know, a spectacular failure. We'll, we'll see. Uh, you know, it's, it's a phrase just came to my mind there. Uh, my father was a huge Don Shula fan. And because my father grew up in an age where if you lived in the South, the NFL games you got on Sundays were the Baltimore Colts because Atlanta Falcons didn't exist yet. And the Carolina Panthers didn't exist yet. And so he grew up watching Johnny Unitas play for, you know, the Colts and Shula coaching him. So he's always been a fan. And he'd always say, Shula can take his and beat yours and he can take yours and beat his. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and yeah, I think you're hitting on, on a really good point there is, you know, if all you've got is the, these tip of the spear guys, what works for them may not work for the people that are on the very back end of the shaft of the spear. And you, you as an instructor are responsible for meeting the student where they are versus only dealing with what what you want them to be able to accomplish are you making are you improving them or are you making them fit the goals that you think are important yeah and so that's um that's another piece of this personality is a huge piece of this but another piece that we don't often talk about is the belief system and when i say belief system a lot of of guys come into the uh shooting world and they're basically given a belief system on the professional side. They're given one. This is the standard. Here's the target. Here's what you're expected to do. And so mm-hmm. there's your belief system about the correct balance of speed and accuracy. Now, over time, you can reject it and say, yeah. this is a gigantic target and, and timeframes that don't match reality. Yeah. But, but, you know, a lot of folks won't. They'll say, well, right. hey, this is good enough. I'm qualified, right? You know, good enough is good enough. If, it, if the minimum standard wasn't the standard, it wouldn't be the minimum standard, right? Yeah. And so 
you know, folks are in the organizational sense, they're often issued. They're yeah. issued a belief system about speed and accuracy. Yeah. Um, when you pay good money, you're often buying a belief system from the instructor. And, and so whatever, if that guy's a B8 guy, well then, okay, I'm a B8 guy. If that guy is an A zone guy, I'm an A zone guy. And if that guy is a, you know, let's, let's make, you know, these superhuman splits and that's what matters. Then, then that's what matters to me because that's what matters to Instagram. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, oftentimes guys are buying a belief system about the correct proportion of speed and accuracy from an instructor. And if they're not getting it there, they're getting it through the, the rules and the discipline of whatever competition and not through their own individual logic. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you start to see trends, you know, you really do, you know, um, it, it seems like you can coalesce them in certain camps, but the belief system really matters in the sense of, am I trying to make the student conform to what I think the correct, or am, am, am I just kind of acknowledging what theirs is and okay, how do I help you reach that goal? I may, I may disagree with it and I can, you yeah. know, I can be a point of discussion, but the belief system is usually tied, not, not a dotted line, but it's usually a hard line to the amount of resources we're willing to commit. How much of our time, how much of our energy, how much of our, uh, you know, available dollars, mm -hmm. um, how, what is the availability of the facilities for us? And so, you know, what I think is important for me personally is not sustainable for the vast majority of folks. And so trying to transplant that to them is, is just not workable, right? It's just going to leave them frustrated with a bad taste in their mouth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'd like for you to talk about uh, standards here for a second. Uh, I had the pleasure of taking Justin's technical force on force class here a couple of months ago. Very, very well done. If you get the chance to take the class, audience, jump on it. I, I, I made phone calls on the way home calling people's like, yeah, next time he posts this announcement, you need to be in it. And, and, uh, hopefully we got you a good customer base recruited for the, for the next time. And maybe the show will lead, lead to some of that. Um, there was something you put up on the board in that class. Um, you know, 100% on your worst day, 80% on the other day. I'd like for you to touch on that, that whole topic. Yeah, so uh, I've always been big on looking for the points of friction. You know, as, uh -huh. as people I respect have disagreements, you know, what are those points of friction and where are we? Because often, like you said, we're talking past one another. We're not, we're not meaningfully, um, you know, advancing the discussion. Uh -huh. And so standards is one of those things where, for a long time, when people said this standard or this is the standard or whatever, you know, however you phrase it, what they really meant, and it was usually in the professional sense of I should be able to do this 100% standard. I've got it broken down my model and it's just a model, right? You can, mm -hmm. you can quibble about it, but it's the percent of time that you can expect the correct outcome. And so 100% standard is really an ideal that on my worst day, when I'm cold and tired and, you know, it's raining and, and my gear's, you know, not ideal and it's under layers, I can still do this. That's 100% standard. It tends to be an ideal um, because organizations will very quickly go to an 80% standard. And the 80% standard is on most days, we can reasonably expect this level of performance. The reason they don't go to 100% standards is because the resources it takes to get there and the consequences, yeah. because 
once you've invested however many dollars or hours into an individual, you're not willing to cut them loose because they didn't meet this standard on this one given day, right? Yeah. Um, there are units that that's the case, but even even there, that's they tend to kind of trickle down to 80% standards. Mm-hmm. And the you know when you're uh, creating standards, what what folks will tend to do is come up with, let's say it's a, a list of tasks. I don't know if your Georgia one is this way, but it's a list of tasks, and this is what we reasonably think would be, you know, good enough. But then we'll still let you pass with 80%. You know, so it, usually whatever the hard thing is, whether it's the 25-yard line or whether it's speed at three yards, whatever it is, you can usually just throw those scores out and you can still qualify. Yeah. Because folks have said, okay, 80% pays the rent. That's the, kind of the military phrase. That on most days, you can do this. And there's a huge difference between a, a there's 20% difference between an 80% standard and a 100% standard. It's almost and, like you can mathematically quantify it. Yeah, it's, I think it's provable. It's yeah. provable that, um, that if you took what you think is it's like a good solid draw, and okay, whatever that number is to you and, you know, whatever that is. And then, okay, on your very worst day, you know, you're not feeling well, it's raining, it's cold, your hands are numb. Can you still do that? Nah, chances yeah. are most people, that's, that's a no, right? Yeah. And so whatever that number is that's an everyday, it's a, on your worst day, it's an everyday standard is the 100% mm-hmm. standard. 80% is the most days. And, and yeah, everybody has a bad day or, or you know, some time that they... Um, whatever it is they fumbled the draw or they didn't Uh hear the command or whatever it is and so but most days they're going to reasonably expect this we leapfrog and that's where most professional organizations live is in this kind of 80 percent standard world and then there's usually the argument of what should be the 100 percent standard and then what happens is i've been a part of this a a lot of times when okay yep i hear you i agree with you that should be the 100 percent standard okay so what would it reasonably take to get every person to that level well, it would be an additional X many days, X many rounds, X many instructors, X many facilities. And then they go, okay, so, okay, 80%. Yeah. You know, 80% will work just fine. And yes, we hear you. It's not ideal, but it's not an ideal world we live in. And so then you leapfrog, because what's a 50% standard? It's worthless, right? Uh-huh. You know, so if, if, you know, flipping coins is the same as your performance, then it's probably not super useful. And so you leapfrog that all the way to 20%. A 20% standard is, this is Instagram, right? And so a 20% standard is your best day. This is your warmed up ideal PR level. This is your, you know, your personal records. This is the, the, the glory run that you post on social media. Um, and so that's the best day stuff. And it, it's not, I'm not saying that it's bad because actually chasing 20% standards increases your overall performance you know a healthy routine has some mixture of 100 performance usually par based mm-hmm. which emphasizes correctness a lot of performance reps at the 80 percent level and then you know load at the 20 percent level where you're trying to get better across mm-hmm. whatever range of tasks and then so you know but 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 let's be but let's be real that's your best day that's your warmed up that's your ideal performance right and what you tend to find is that a lot of the discussions that used to anchor at the 180% level, in what was you know, previously called standards, we're now calling a uh, 20% level best day, we're calling those standards. 
which is kind of a, yeah, it meets the technical definition, but not the same definition under, you know, Merriam-Webster is the 180% level. Um, and so then the, the last across that span is the aspirational standard. And so it goes from every day to most days to best days to someday, yeah. which is, you know, this is this pipe dream of, man, wouldn't it be cool to, you know, run a three minute mile or to, you know, have a whatever, you know, a, a sub second draw or whatever it is. Sub second draw is not necessarily aspirational anymore, but with the old equipment, the old stuff, it absolutely was right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the aspirational standards through social media and honestly through a lot of marketing it's been used so much as it's been overused as marketing tools that it, it clouds the discussion right because they're not super useful right. a guy that that is not solid on his his most days performance who cares what his aspirational you know chasing this 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 dragon is you know like wh where is he on his best day where is he on his most days and then, you know, what really matters, where is he every single day? Um, and so that's kind of the, that's just a framework, right? But it, it runs the span. And there's a very, you can quickly see, are we talking to enthusiasts where they focus? Or are we talking to, you know, professionals? And I don't mean that in a, in a negative mm -hmm. sense, but it is a clear distinction. Like the um, most professional organizations don't really care what you're, your you know best day performances or right. or your you know certainly don't care about any aspirational something right. it's you know can okay great you met the standard easily then great you're yeah. you're good to go yeah you know and it's funny when you talk about the the standards and the organizational standards versus you know the enthusiast standard the state of georgia says that a cop can miss the target completely six times by all you hits planet earth and you are qualified to carry a firearm if you hit uh -huh. if you get a 10 point hit on all the other shots on an eight by ten a zone on the target okay the fbi if you completely miss the target five times you can still shoot at an instructor level score on their qual if you completely miss it 10 times or less, you still get to carry a gun in the field. Yeah. Okay. I don't find that to be acceptable. But that is a standard that is put out there for us. And, you know, I, I think that's one, one instance in where we really need to be looking at what the private sector guys are saying on that yeah and there's no doubt the state of the art has moved the equipment has moved mm -hmm. you know the, the quite frankly the instruction and and the the general sense of everyone's belief of what's mm -hmm. possible has has yeah. moved um and so i i'm not saying that folks shouldn't right. relook at their standards but if mm -hmm. we should be honest about what they are right. is i guess my main point is that if you're talking about something that's really a 20 percent standard that you know mm -hmm you can just sit here and try it over and over and over again. And one day you catch it on film, then, you know, mm -hmm. you get this, uh, whatever, this, this, this totem that says you're an amazing human. Um, and, and I've got some of those, right. So mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm only mildly poking fun. Mm -hmm. The, that's not the same thing as what I can reasonably expect right. 
most days and it's certainly not the same thing as what I can reasonably expect from everyone in the group every day. And so that's really the, the, the main purpose of this model is just to clarify where the discussion is and where as you allocate effort across like, you know, training because social media and the incentives it provides has really caused people to chase the, the right-hand side into the, you know, the, the, the best day in aspirational territory. And in some cases, I think it's stunning people's growth and other, in other cases, maybe it's short, uh, shortcutting development and they're doing, you know, fantastic, maybe. Um, What about this topic? Would you like to discuss that I have failed to ask you about? Um, I think that's, uh, I'll just share, I'll share a a fun fact. I just read yesterday. How about that? I'll go, I'll take a hard right turn. So, um, um, you're familiar with the term dragoon, like, you know, a Colt's mm-hmm. dragoon or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in terms yeah. of the, the old black powder, uh, uh-huh. revolver, but you know, the U S mounted dragoons. Mm-hmm. So I read yesterday, I, I can't confirm this a single source, but I was like, yeah, it's super cool that the term itself comes from the original French dragoons who under Louis the something rather were, the, the, the king had basically two regular units. He had the musketeers mm-hmm. who had muskets, you know, shockingly. And the dragoons were issued these shorter barreled muskets that in French, the dragoon means dragon because that short barreled musket in the old, you know, very primitive black powder mm-hmm. shot out a giant lick of flame. And it was usually the lesser nobility, basically broke nobility. And, and they were used to clear the path when the king was traveling and, you know, kind of fight highwaymen. And, and so it kind of had like this, like cool guy connotation. They're the dragons, right? Yeah. Like these, you know, a bunch of broke nobles who are doing brave. <laughs> they were kind of the, the salt of their day because they, mm-hmm. you know, the musketeers were palace guards and dragoons yeah. were going out forward to be skirmishers and to do, you know, kind of individual actions and took a lot of bravery, exceptional writing skill, et cetera. And so it had the kind of cool guy name, but uh, based on the the short barreled uh, early musket, you know, primitive muskets they carried. And I thought, well, that's, I don't know how you would say it in French, but I thought that was fascinating. So I just thought I'd share it with your listeners. (laughs) It's funny how terms and stuff get into the language and stay there for centuries. Yeah. And and nobody, you know, don't know where they came from or what the origin were or really if they still have the same meaning that they did when they first came into the, to the lexicon. Uh, Justin, how can people find you? Uh, so I don't have a website and I, I don't usually give out my email and text uh, yeah. in, in open forums, but I, I, I am on Instagram dialed in training. Mm-hmm. I think there's some underscores or something in there, but if you type in dialed in training and, and my name, you'll, you'll find me and yeah. folks interested, they can DM. I, I do. Mm-hmm a handful of open enrollment classes for small groups a year, not, not a lot, but, uh, but they usually, they, they tend to, to be uh, good events with, with good Americans. So uh, happy to talk to folks if, if they're interested for next year, there's a couple of sure. openings for, for uh, hosting classes. Cool. Uh, to the audience out there, uh, take advantage of that. Find Justin to take a class from him. If you have a range and would like to host him and he can round up some good quality Americans and good shooters uh, you know, round those up. I, I took, like I said earlier, his technical force on force class and got a lot out of it, uh, a lot out of the class. And um, 
actually answer some questions that I had in my own mind about some things. And so I, I found that personally beneficial. Uh, and so it's good quality uh, content. I think you've seen or listened, whichever format you, you partake of this podcast. Um, Justin's very intellectual and puts a lot of thought and, and everything behind his content. And you will not be disappointed if you get the opportunity to train with him. Uh, any final thoughts, Justin? No, I appreciate you having me on, Lee. And, and, and honestly, I got to say, I, I, I'm really grateful for what you're doing, documenting all the, the you know, the early masters and uh, um, in, in the growth of, of the, um, you know, the training world, right? Like in the, where things came from. And uh, that history project is, is going to have a, a long-term impact. I'm, I'm grateful that somebody's doing it. And you know, I think you're doing a great job of it. So I'm just to be, you know, in the same podcast lineup with, with a lot of the folks you've had on is, is a real uh, treat for me. So thank you. Well, well thank you. And uh, let me tell you, this, you belong in that lineup along with all the great masters. Yeah. that We don't say that enough to the current contemporary people. And, you know, I, I sent a text message to, I've mentioned it on the show several times, the text made, uh, was a group of us in, and I sent a text message, Hey, Justin Dial is going to be the guest for this coming week. And the responses that came back, uh, one of them, a name you'll know, Wayne Dobbs, you know, when those people speak highly of you, it says a lot. And, uh, I'm telling you folks, this is a source that you need to be going out and, and training, training with. And, uh, as always, audience, we realize that your most important asset is your time, and thank you for choosing to spend your time with us.